Welcome to the Moves Room, everybody. You are not just here with the OG3. We have a guest today. First time in Ooh, a while. Finally! Yes, and, and it's because Bradley did some work, got, you know, he's swamped up there in, in Morris, and, and because right, he has tenure, yes. he's got so much going on, but he... <laughs> You found a guest for us today. We're super excited to have Amy Hazel Leschke today with us. She's from Procross, works for Procross, has worked for them for a couple months, um, got her PhD at the University of Minnesota uh, with a big crossbreeding project that, that really changed the game. So uh, Amy, thank you for being here today. Give us a little rundown on who you are and, and where you're at now. Well, thanks guys. It's great to be here with you. Um, yeah, so I grew up on a dairy farm in Southeast Minnesota. Um, my background's actually in registered Holsteins and I really enjoyed all the youth programming stuff that I got to do coming along with that. But then I decided to go to the U of M for my uh, undergraduate degree. And my first exposure to crossbreds was milking cows in the St. Paul Dairy Barn. And it was really neat. And so I got to milk some Montbelliard sired crosses my first year there on campus, it immediately piqued my interest in what these crossbreds could do. Quickly, I got to develop a relationship with Les Hansen and Brad. I, I actually have been fortunate, well, I don't know if fortunate's the best word, but I've been in Brad's footsteps for many, many years of my <laughs> I don't career. about that. <laughs> uh, master's and PhD at Minnesota. I've gotten to work on this 10-year project with crossbreeding and gotten to intimately know um, a number of herds around Minnesota doing the research with us in partnership. And then the last two years, I have moved on to other employment avenues since our research project came to a close. And the Procross company felt like a really awesome fit. I believe in the crossbreeding rotation and the results that we got, which I think were really enthusiastic for so many of the farmers been a really great opportunity for me to keep working in the same type of area. All right. So we promised you there's two very important questions that we need to it's ask. Super you. secret questions. Super secret. Okay. So that the first one is what is your favorite beef breed? If you have to pick oh. one, what's your favorite <laughs> beef breed? Well, I guess I'd have to go with stabilizer because uh what's actually, that? That's like Gelvy crossbred something. That's a crossbred. <laughs> yeah, well, it is a, it's a composite breed, but it is actually a breed. I mean, it's its own breed. It's not it is, it is. different from Jeez, We're, we're going to need swag from the Galvi Association here now. My gosh. <laughs> okay, so so what is it again? Sorry, tell me again. So Stabilizer is a, a breed, a composite breed consisting mostly of Angus and Semitol lines, but it does have some South Devon and some Galvi included as well. Of course, another shameless plug for my company because Creative Genetics does sell uh, stabilizer beef semen. And they're the breed with the largest database of feed efficiency testing. Okay. Are those mostly black then, the stabilizers? Like what's their hide color? Yeah, they come uh, both in black and in red coat colors. Okay. Uh, because depending on the Angus influence in their background, there's some red Angus uh, incorporated as well. Sure. We better better update the listeners on the list. Black Agnes with three, Hereford with one, Keenano with one, Brahmin with one, and Stabilizer with one. Okay, now I need to ask us a question. For sure, us for sure, you're going to say Beefmaster because those are pretty good too, you know. It's a... 
Well, so now I need to ask the question because I already I screwed this up and you probably won't hear it on the podcast on the take breaking the fourth wall here. But I said balancer when it said stabilizer there because I was wondering what the difference is between the two. I, I, I've never been ba- I've never known a ton about all these different breeds. So what's the difference between a balancer and a stabilizer? Balancer is Gelvy Angus okay. only. Only. Stabilizer okay. has what else, Amy, in there? Yeah, mostly mostly just Angus and Simital, but yeah, it has influence also from Gelvy and South Devon. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Next question is your favorite dairy breed. I know we're talking crossbreeding today, but you got to pick one dairy breed. One what singular. Is, what is your favorite? And it can't be a crossbreed. It can't. No, no. It has to be a purebred. Oh, well, I'm gonna have to go with Montbelliard on that one too, uh, as well because they're just such a great cross with Holstein and uh, Shameless Plug, part of Pro Cross as well. But yeah, right. I think they're, they're exactly. You, we we get swag for the Shameless Plugs. Remember yeah, that? exactly. So the more you say it, the more you do them. The more exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, that that that's another new breed on the dairy side. I mean, we don't have a lot of the same breeds here. So Jer- <laughs> Jersey leading with two, Ooh. I guess Holstein is also up there with two. Dutch Belted with two. Yeah. Normandy with one, Brown Swiss with, Brown Swiss with one, and then now Montbilliard with one as well. So Jersey. Who's the Brown Swiss? Kirsten, oh. a grad Kirsten. student. Kirsten. Kirsten. Sure. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I wasn't invited to those episodes. That's so right. Not. I didn't know. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Okay, we've we've answered the important questions. We've got our favorite beef breed, our favorite dairy breed. Now we can start talking about crossbreeding. Let's go back to the study, yes. the big study that you did at the University of Minnesota. Tell us, just give us a brief overview of what you guys were trying to accomplish, because I know this thing was kind of a, a long study. Well, I right? could I could tell you how we got there. Let's want, do it. You know? Of course, Brad's always got to, you know. Yeah, we I have a guest opinions. on, but Brad's going to talk the whole time. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. You know, Brad, no. I got to give Brad credit, though, because, you know, I, I've been around the university a long time, as I alluded to, but really, you know, between Brad and Les's effort, they kind of got this whole crossbreeding thing going, and Brad's got kind of the history and the longevity behind the system, too, so he gets some credit here, no doubt. So Amy and I go back a long time. We've spent many time in uh, France and in Europe uh, exploring these breeds, but it started way back in... I don't even know, 2001, actually, with a California study that we're using Normandy, Scandinavian red, which was Swedish red and Norwegian red at the time, and Montpellier. And that's part of my master's and PhD that sort of looked at production, fertility, longevity, and economics of those, and in a nutshell found that uh, crossbreds were more profitable. The Scandinavian red and Montpellier were more profitable on a daily basis than a Holstein. Normandy, uh, may not fit well for a confinement type system. But we did not use health information. We didn't have health information on those cows. So that was the real reason why we started in Minnesota again and to to look at herds that we could work with in Minnesota that were willing to record health. So that's sort of how it, it all began. And there was crossbreds, you know, at Morris here in St. Paul that Amy and I worked on. Amy and I used to get kicked all the time by cows in the St. Paul barn trying to collect blood and you name it. 
and a really uh, fascinating and detailed system for body dimension measurements. Oh, uh, yeah. Yep. And like, yeah, and Tony Sikora was in on that and built us a fancy set of tools that could take all sorts of obscure types of measurements. I mean, don't get me wrong, linear scoring is great, but why linear score when you can build homemade measuring tools out of your wood You got the Sikora system now. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. So anyways, tell us, uh, tell us about this study, I guess. Sorry for my interruption, Emily. Uh, the project that I got to work on was launched in 2008. Uh, we initially recruited 10 herds and we had uh, eight herds that completed with us the full 10 years. Uh, towards the end of the study, we actually combined two herds together because they were owned jointly by the same herd owner. So when you read our final papers, it will talk about seven herds in total. Those herds enrolled a total of over uh, 3,500 cows. Foundation Holsteins is kind of what launched this whole study. The design of the study was we asked the herd owners to breed at least 150 of their pure Holstein Foundation cows to both Montbilliard and Viking Red to generate F1 crosses. And then the balance of those other 100 Holsteins uh, were bred to Holstein sires so that we would have a pure Holstein control. Now, many of these herds actually enrolled more than the minimum of 150 and 100. So there was extra cows in both breed groups in a lot of cases. But then as the generations got rolling, the F1 crosses then were bred to the third breed. So we had the rotation going in both directions. And at the same time, in, in all cases, in every herd, each generation had a pure Holstein herd mate comparison group. And so we targeted herds that uh, had that were on DHIA tests so we could get all of the production parameters and fertility traits. The other big trait groups that were emphasized were survival and then the health traits that Brad mentioned. And then of course we took all those things and combined them together uh, to be able to look at total profit which was kind of the, the whole objective at the end of the day. Was that lifetime total profit? Not just first lactation or not just a, a few lactations, but lifetime total profit. Correct, yeah. So, I mean, we looked at a lot of different traits on a lactational basis, but the, the objective was to look at profit in two different ways. So we had lifetime profit measured from the time the cow first calved for first lactation until she left the herd. And then we just summed all of the incomes and expenses from every day of her life during that time period. But then we also broke it down to a profit per day in the herd. And the reason that that was important is because a lot of dairy farmers don't have endless space for cows to just keep growing and expanding. So the profit per day in the herd is really a better metric that you would look at if you have a finite stall number in your barn. So you can kind of think of it as more like a profit per stall per day in, in a way. Did you include calf health and calf loss and like all these things that happen early in life? Was that, was that accounted for? We did not look at anything that happened prior to a first calving. Um, except we did look at age at first calving as a trait. Um, and we balanced the replacement cost based on age at first calving, which of course then is influenced by heifer fertility. Uh, but we did not include any other heifer traits, 
mostly because a lot of these herds had their heifers raised off-site. And so we weren't real confident in the, in the quality of heifer data that uh, we had available to us. The main finding was that crossbreds were more profitable, right? Yeah, exactly. Yep, that's what we found. When push came to shove on the two breed crosses, the Montbelliard Holstein and Viking Red Holsteins combined were 47 cents more profitable per cow per day than their Holstein herd mates. And then when we went to the next generation of Viking Red sired crosses out of the Montbelliard Holstein dams, we added them together with Montbelliard sired crosses out of Viking Red Holstein dams. Those cows were 34 cents more profitable per day than Holstein herd maids. I mean, that's, I mean, it doesn't sound like much when you're talking about cents per day, but that adds up so fast. Oh, My yeah. goodness, 40 cents per day, per head, per head per day is a lot of money. Definitely. Because I mean, when you think about some of the other types of management decisions we're making out in the field today, we have people making drastic changes to diets just to try to save one or two cents per cow per day. And here we're talking about a profit margin of, you know, 30 cents or more per cow per day. This could be a huge profit changer for um, for dairymen who want to take in who want to take this uh, method of breeding into the herds. Even if you had a small herd, hundred cows or or so, that's more than ten thousand dollars a year in additional profit. And if you have larger herds, five hundred cows, thousand cows, it adds up really fast. Yeah, at at forty cents per head per day, I was just doing napkin back of a napkin math here at 500 cows that's $73,000 per year uh by with that 40 40 cents per head per day so it's it's not a small amount of yeah, money you know it's a good chunk of change yeah yeah, yeah. girls gotta eat girls, girls gotta, gotta eat girls gotta eat <laughs> all right why why do you think that people are not adopting crossbreeding as much as as they are, because when you see these numbers, I mean, it seems pretty clear. Why are people avoiding the adoption of it? That's a that's a good question. I think part of it is, you know, just it's kind of a new thing and a little bit of fear of the unknown. Um, you know, dairymen in the U.S. are pretty traditional, and we were all kind of raised through 4-H programming and whatnot to uh, only identify with six pure breeds of dairy cows, uh, the big three being Holstein, Jersey, and Brown Swiss. And uh, we have a lot of background using Jersey for crossbreeding and maybe to a lesser degree, the Brown Swiss, uh, in, at least in published studies. And they, I think they've been successful in the field in some cases, but not in others. Um, so people have tried it or seen other people try it in their herds with mixed reviews. Really the work that we've done at the U of M's been some of the first that has actually been able to assign solid profitability numbers to some of these other types of crosses. And our work on the Procross rotation in the research is really probably foundational as far as uh, what we would recommend producers start with when they want to crossbreed if they want these kind of profit margins. So I think part of it is to get back to your question is, you know, getting uh, a little bit more education out there and uh, showing people that, you know, you can achieve some of the same or better production parameters with a Procross as you can with your Holstein, but you can also experience better fertility, uh, less veterinary costs, 
uh, less replacement cost and all these things kind of roll into your bottom line. So getting more exposure out there, I think will be key and it is growing quickly. It's just that maybe we don't read about it every time we turn around in a trade magazine. So it doesn't seem like it's growing as fast as it really is. So and sometimes one question that I have on that, Bradley, you will let me talk. No, you go ahead. So <laughs> one question I would have on that, you know, you were just talking about Amy, how, you know, there's been mixed reviews on farms that have tried it, or, you know, they're looking at their neighbor to see what they think. And something we talk a lot about related to any topic on this show is management and the influence management has on whether something on the dairy is successful or not. And so did you find, I mean, just anecdotally, you know, were these cows, you have to manage them differently because of temperament or size or, you know, whatever else it may be. I'm just kind of curious on that. No, I mean, Procross fits really well into uh, most typical U.S. herds. The the study that we encounter or that we conducted actually, we targeted herds that were high production herds. Uh, they had excellent manage management, great fertility numbers. the The main reason why they wanted to join the study was because they they were seeking a system that would reduce their labor cost. They wanted to improve profit, obviously. And they just wanted more ease of management and less sick cows in the hospital pen was their goal. So yeah, and they were encouraged by the California data and were looking for, you know, a system that they were hopeful could achieve that. And all of these herds too had a keen interest in having, participating in, in an effort that had good designed balance to a study. So they actually knew the data that they were contributing was going to be uh, well-organized and well-designed so they would have good, solid comparison group. I mean, there's a, there's a lot that goes into the, the increased value. And I think it's really important to know that the herds in the study were already doing excellent management. So we weren't, we weren't changing a whole lot of other things to, to make this more successful. And that's what I find most intriguing about a lot of this data is that we didn't take a, a farm that was struggling change a lot of things, help them, and then also introduce these crossbreds. We took very good farms that were already doing very well and just wanted to do better. And that, yeah. I think, is the biggest selling point for me on some of this crossbreeding stuff is that we're we're seeing increased value over the top of herds that were already pretty good or, or excellent even. Yeah, so to, to give you an idea, for example, when we ended the study in 2018, collectively the seven herds were right we're just under 30,000 pounds of milk for a rolling herd average. One of them was a top award winner for a Dairy Cattle Reproductive Council award uh, the same year the study ended. Uh, so yeah, we had some really top-notch Minnesota dairies. The, the herd size averaged just under 1,000 cows per farm. It's excellent to see. And I know that like the summary of all this stuff is that and, I, and I'm a veterinarian, so I, I immediately look for conception rate, right? And I look at all the repro stuff right away. And, and to see 10 points on first, first AI, you know, that, that is, that's a massive deal, a huge deal. Absolutely. Uh, and then you add all the other stuff in as well, you know, whether that's longevity or feed efficiency. Um, I think one that we don't talk about enough is probably the increased cull value. There's a lot there. Uh, and we're looking at, you know, between 10 and 20% on the increase in cull value. And that's, that's a big deal as well. All around, I'm, I'm trying to find something that why shouldn't I do it? 
you know, Brad's always going to say, well, yeah, everyone should do it. But I, I've, been, I've been realizing a lot that not everything is for every hurt. If we take all the personal things out of it, like, yeah, I, I've raised jerseys my whole life, so I'm going to stay with jerseys, that kind of thing. Take that out of it. Where does this not fit? Is there a place that it doesn't fit? Probably doing pro cross wouldn't be for you if you are into showing cows and that's your favorite pastime in life is packing up your string and going to shows for your summer vacations because while these are great functional commercial cows, they're not show cows. We, we actually were able to measure the type scoring via linear scores too. We, we learned that the udders were deeper by a point on average. So they're not fancy uttered, but they're more functional uttered cows because we were able to find that uh, the teeth placement on these cows, the rear teeth were actually wider, meaning our Holsteins today kind of have a tendency in some cases to have back teeth that are touching or crossing in a few cases. That can be pretty frustrating for folks in the parlor. And when you have you know, crossbred cows with slightly wider rear teeth placement, that can actually be a benefit. So that's what I mean when I say perhaps a more functional udder. They're great functional cows, but uh, they don't belong in a show ring. So I, that'd be my only caution for someone maybe who might not appreciate this type of cow. Well, I, I am all for it. I, I identify very much so with ugly yet functional cows. That is, that is all. <laughs> I love it. So I, I, I'm, I'm a big Function fan. Of over it. fashion, right, that's, Joe? That's me all day, every day. <laughs> so I have a question because when you were talking about Amy, how, yes, we're seeing very close rear teats, potentially cross rear teats. And then it made me think instantly of how difficult those are, not just in the parlor, but also in robots. So again, kind of anecdotally, did any, were any of these dairies robot dairies or did they transition to robots during the course of the study? They were not. All these dairies had uh, conventional parlors, either a parallel herringbone or a rotary parlor. Brad, you're on mute. We can see you yelling and pointing your finger, but. That's usually what the way it is, right? <laughs> <laughs> there is a robot herd in Wisconsin. Uh, yes. Yeah, that uh, uses Procross uh, Strauss and, and uh, is in robots. So it, it can work in a robot herd too. Yeah, we have customer herds within the Procross company that, that do have the robots and many that are interested in putting in robots because it's a popular and growing trend. Although one thing I would say is, you know, they might not be show cows and what kind of cow, you know, I think, and both Amy and I have had uh, great time in, in France and Sweden. We've been there and actually saw these breeds in their, you know, natural environment. And I think if you ask some of these producers, some of these producers, even in California and Minnesota, they've all been to Europe to see these breeds. And that's where they really sort of fall in love with these breeds. You know, once you see the pure breeds and their management style and systems, it's like, wow, yeah, these are, these are not, these are good dairy breeds. At least that's my opinion, going to see them. You, you'll get a, a bigger appreciation for, for these breeds uh, if you see them all in a herd. You know, it's nothing like seeing a herd of 100 Normandies or Montpellier or, or uh, Viking Red all in, in one. The room is going to Sweden? Is that what I mean? Yes, we should. If yes. Brad, if Bradley pays for it, I'm down. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll figure out, we figure out how to make, get some money to go to uh, Europe to, to see these breeds. Definitely. I'm yeah. all for that. Brad, you could just get a grant or something. You yeah, know? exactly. Grant money. Grant money. Grant, grant money, money, grant money, grant money. 
<sighs> Brad, I thought you were going to launch into talking about AOC cheeses, actually. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's another, that's a different podcast. We could talk about all the good cheeses and stuff they make. Hey, maybe well, we should. We should do a cheese. A a cheese that should be episode? our. That should be our next. Uh, that should be our other question. What's your favorite kind of cheese? Uh-huh. Oh my gosh! Yes. That's. A, I thought that's if a we had to keep question. it even, we'd have to be like, "Oh, what's your favorite kind of beef?" Or, you know, oh yeah, it could yeah. just get out of control quickly. <laughs> it could. <laughs> it really could. Which really I mean, that's kind of the general theme of the show. So. Exactly. Okay, so one thing I want to I want to throw out there before we really kind of wrap things up a little bit here is that I think we we presented that crossbreeding is is an excellent choice for a lot of people. I want to caution everyone that this is not a solution for poor management. And Emily was kind of getting at that earlier. Mm-hmm. If you have poor management, it doesn't matter what cows are in the system. So, so keep that in mind. Um, yep. It's still, it still matters more than anything else. So, so keep that in mind. Um, what you put into the cows is what you get out. Exactly. Exactly. We, what we talked about before was that the people are, a little scared and it's a little daunting to start this whole process. Walk me through that. Like, how would I get started if I wanted to do this? It's not, it's not an overnight thing, obviously. No, that's a great thing to think about because yeah, breeding takes a long time. I mean, we have to stop and think sometimes, you know, we have a generation interval of three to five years for dairy cattle, right? So a lot of the producers I work with in the Procross company take one of two approaches. The most common one would be just to buy uh, semen from either the Montbelliard breed or the Viking red breed and start in making F1 crosses and then turn around and breed those F1s to the third breed two and a half years down the road and get your three breed crosses. And then you can come back with that with Holstein. So that's how you make the third generation. And then if you picture a rotating circle in your mind. That's kind of how you just keep rotating the three breeds around and around. And so some of the herds that we started working with 20 years ago in the Procross company, you know, now they're on their sixth, seventh, and eighth generation of crossbreeding, and they just continually rotate the three breeds. There's a variety of opinions about whether you should start with Montbelliard or Viking Red. Uh, We don't endorse one direction for every herd. However, we've learned through the research at the U of M, if you start with Montbelliard, you get a little bit more profit if you start that way first. Um, Maybe the reason for that is, is because Montbelliard is a little bit more genetically distant from Holstein. So you might be getting a little bit more hybrid vigor on that cross than you would starting with Viking Red. So that seems to be the most popular way to go. Although one way or one way to reduce your the body size of your cows immediately would be to start with the Viking Red. So if you're working in an older facility, maybe with smaller stalls and you're really wanting to uh, decrease body size right away, I'd certainly endorse starting with the Viking Red to get your F1s going. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention though, rather than breeding your way there, we have a few producers who instead choose to buy Procross replacements or Procross cows that are already several generations down the rotation. The advantage of doing that is that you jump right into a more homogenous looking cow system. You'll find that after you get going in the three breed rotation after two, three, four generations, these cows tend to look pretty even, you know, just walking through the pens. Some people don't experience that with the F1 generation. So if that's a concern, you might, you know, find better satisfaction just by 
uh, finding someone who can sell you a few pot loads of, uh, of the crosses already going. Yeah, I had seen the data on the Montbilliard being a little more profitable to start that way, but size of cows is becoming a massive factor in all of this. You know, there's people sure. that are working in older facilities and they, they cannot have cows get too big. I think that's important. I mean, there's a lot of people that have even switched all the way to just milking jerseys because their size restrictions are so big. That sounds really stupid. Their <laughs> size, size restrictions uh, uh, are, are an issue. Yeah, it's really a problem in some of the barns that I've seen. And yeah, jerseys are a solution, but we've learned through the Procross research that even the three breed crosses sired by Holstein are still smaller than a pure Holstein. If you're kind of set up for a Holstein size cow, but you just want her to fit in the stall better and not necessarily go as small as a jersey, you know, a Procross cow might work out well for you because we can reduce frame size pretty substantially. Okay, now how do you work beef into this whole system? A lot of people are breeding are breeding to beef, right? I mean, is it this? It's the same theory, right? You're just taking whoever doesn't make the cut and breeding to beef. Yeah, and we have a lot of customers taking that route. We have a good lineup of sex semen of all three breeds. So if you like doing sex semen on part of your herd, beef semen on the rest, that certainly works uh, within the Procross system too. And then conventional semen, if that fits into your plan, any of the above would work. Amy, thank you for being here. We really appreciate it. We are going to wrap today. Uh, that is plenty. The wheels are coming off. I need sleep. Uh, thank you, Amy, for being here. If you have questions, comments, scathing rebuttals for us, please send them to the Room at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. We can get you in touch with Amy, but if you need more information about Procross, please go to procross.info, all the information you need there. If you want to find more information from us, please visit extension.umn.edu and catch us on Facebook at UMN Beef and at UMN Dairy. Thank you for listening, everybody. I'm going to go get some sleep. The wheels were just falling off. Okay.